Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Asaf Ramorowski, the Executive Director of Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, and it's my pleasure once again to welcome you to our latest edition of our SPME BDS Monitor Conversations. Uh, this afternoon, we have the privilege and opportunity to once again uh, discuss the latest trends uh, in, the B, in the BDS space with the editor of our BDS Monitor, Alex Jaffe. Uh, I would like to welcome everybody who is new to our program and obviously welcome back everybody who has we have not spoken to uh, since uh, the summer vacation. Uh, it's a pleasure to see everybody back. Uh, a few housekeeping issues as far as how the format this afternoon will go and then we'll take it from there. Uh, Alex will talk for about uh, 25 minutes or so and then we will go into Q&A. Uh, those of you who are logged in via the computer, all you have to do is either raise your virtual hand and be able to unmute you, or you can type in your question via the chat, and I will read your question and we will take it from there. Uh, as always, I apologize in advance. If we don't get to your question this afternoon, you could always email us at bdsmonitor at spme.org, bdsmonitor at spme.org, and we will do our best to respond in a timely fashion. Um, so, um, Alex, once again, it's always a pleasure. Uh, the uh, virtual floor is yours, and uh, we will take it from there. Terrific. Well, um, <clears throat> let me also say um, thanks and welcome to all of you who are joining us today. I hope everybody's summer was uh, peaceful and calm, if not actually cool and relaxing. Um, as always, BDS continues to move along in various directions and to morph and to um, adapt. Um, and we have to, we have to also. And um, so just as a, a kind of reminder, these, these um, briefings are not intended to give a comprehensive uh, rundown of every single BDS uh, incident or, or phenomenon, but rather to give the overall uh, an indication of the overall shape of uh, where we're at now and some cautious predictions about where we're going. And, and the same holds true for the BDS monitor, which comes out at the very end of, of each month. Um, so with, with that in mind, um, let's start with some of the most notable and I think most important um, spheres where BDS is is active, and that's uh, politics. And here I want to offer the usual uh, caution or disclaimer that SPME is is uh, is nonpartisan. It's not political. We don't endorse uh, any political party or political candidates. That said, uh, we do oppose uh, certain candidates on the basis of their uh, support for BDS and, and anti-Semitism. And let me, uh, let me continue and say that in the past, tr let's say traditionally, um, BDS has been very much a feature of not the Republican Party, which has its own issues with anti-Semitism and crazy people, um, but rather of the Democratic Party. And for better and for worse, I wonder whether this might be changing a little bit. And this, and I say this on the basis of something that just literally occurred yesterday morning, where the Republican candidate for governor in Illinois, um, Darren Bailey, visited excuse me, the Bridgewater Mosque uh, in Bridgewater, and was uh, appeared, agreed to appear in front of a map uh, of the Holy Land on which Israel was erased, and um, answered some questions about BDS in a very um, neutral way that emphasized uh, respect for free speech and so on. Um, Illinois has a very uh, notable anti-BDS law at the state level. And again, these anti-BDS laws don't affect free, free speech. They 
they have to do with commercial activities as they relate to the state government. Um, <clears throat> but it was interesting and that he, um, he appeared there. Now, Bridgewater uh, has very interesting and important associations. Those of you who are familiar with its connections, um, the Holy Land Fund case and Sami al-Aryan, uh, Hamas funding, there are some 9-11 connections that uh, should be noted. Um, but Palestinian Americans are a very strong um, political force in Bridgewater as they are in a number of communities you know, in Illinois. And the, so the appearance of a Republican Senate, uh, gubernatorial candidate is not necessarily, uh, not necessarily notable, but rather his willingness to um, fudge and obfuscate and dance around. Now, on the one hand, this is this is pure politics. On the other hand, on on the other hand, um, I wonder whether this says something about not only Illinois politics but uh, politics as a whole in this country, where the BDS issue and Israel and anti-Semitism had been very much moved to the center of the political agenda in the last several years, which is of course why we're all um, here today. And <clears throat> whether candidates on both sides of the aisle, both from both political parties, um, are haven't taken notice and are trying to um, triangulate saying one thing to Muslim Americans and another thing to Jewish Americans and to Christian Americans. Uh, it's something that bears watching. And I, I don't exactly know how to, uh, what to make of it yet. Illinois politics um, is very peculiar um, and all politics everywhere are very peculiar, particularly these days. Uh, but again, it's something that bears watching. Now in the, in the August uh, Democratic primaries. Uh, there were a, a number of members of the squad who were uh, re-elected and who will pro who won their primaries and who will be Democratic candidates and who will likely win their seats in the November general elections. Most notably, uh, Jamal Bowman, who covers part of the Bronx and uh, Westchester. Uh, Rashida Talib and Ilhan Omar. And it was interesting that, as I noted in last month's uh, monitor, that um, Omar won her primary by a very, very narrow margin, which led some observers to question why APAC and the Democratic Majority for Israel and other major funders had declined to um, back her opponents with money that would have um, potentially, theoretically, um, eliminated her from the elections. So the lesson there is that um, that anything is possible in a, in a very strange electoral environment that we find ourselves in. Um, Bowman's election was uh, was less contested. Uh, partly because his opponents on the Republican side, uh, on the Democratic side rather, were split. Uh, and the Jewish community in Westchester in particular was split between these two candidates. So it's very hard to, it's very hard to say, very hard to predict, except um, in as much as these three mainstays of the squad who are implacably opposed to Israel, who are, uh, strident supporters of, of BDS uh, will almost certainly reappear in, um, in the House of Representatives in the next session. Um, now, if we move on to the campus scene, uh, which is campuses are just now restarting. Uh, there are uh, after the um, after the summer break and after Labor Day, it's a little too soon to say what 
um, particular BDS uh, activities or initiatives are going to be uh, are going to be materializing. Um, it, it is important to note, though, that over the summer and and in fact, continuing as of literally this morning, um, there is important pushback that has appeared in the form of Department of Education Civil Rights Division investigations of several schools and lawsuits by students um, against schools and um, student groups. So I'll, I'll mention uh, only a few of these. Um, literally as of this morning, I, at least it was new to me, uh, the Department of Education uh, is now conducting an investigation at the University of Vermont where a sexual assault awareness group had excluded um, Zionists, and you have to put the word Zionists in big scary quotes, um, as part of its, as part of its solidarity um, policy. And you know, much more, much more predictably and humorously, really, um, the Revolutionary Socialist Union also excluded Zionists. Um, this, so you know, Jew, Jewish students and you know Zionist students who want to join the revolutionary student uh, student groups, just before before warned that it's not going to be an easy an easy sell. Um, but one of the interesting features of the University of Vermont situation, uh, and the reporting is still at the early stages, is that uh, that these students had gone to the university's um, diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucrats and had essentially been blown off. They had been laughed out of the room because um, Jews can't be discriminated against because they're because they're white and because they're a particular social class, or so the story goes. And this too is, I think, uh, completely in keeping with what we know so far about DEI bureaucracies, which have quite literally taken over uh, university bureaucracies from within and have grown like uh, like weeds in every in every single institution as well as in the corporate world uh, and it makes me wonder whether any kinds of efforts to change this situation as opposed to uh, in terms of educating DEI bureaucrats about the Jewish experience and Jews as a marginalized minority in the United States and elsewhere um, whether this kind of initiative really might have any promise or or not, but we'll we'll see. Um, another thing which which appeared literally uh, an hour or two ago was information that um, there's a there's an ongoing loss lawsuit um, against the City University of New York and the Department of Education investigation as well. And as of today, the City University of New York has apparently um, appointed uh, its own investigator to look into these allegations, which come from uh, former faculty, uh, current and former faculty members as well as students, and are particularly focused on Kingsborough Community College, um, as well as as well as other units. Um, the investigator, it, it seems, is uh, an attorney who was formerly with CARE in Minnesota. So if this turns out to be the case, as seems to be, we have an indication of how the City University of New York uh, regards um, anti-Semitism. And uh, there, anyone who's read the monitor in the last month or two knows that uh, uh, city councilwoman um, has been pressing for uh, for accountability and held hearings that the uh, the CUNY chancellor basically blew them off 
blew her off and refused to appear. He was traveling or having his nails done or something along those lines. And they had a private meeting. Um, the institution does not take any Jewish concerns seriously, uh, concerns from faculty or concerns from um, students. And all of these concerns um, are focused on incidents of harassment and intimidation um, aimed at Jews for support of Israel um, in the first instance and Jews as Jews and more, more broadly as well. Uh, and so to return to you know, my first topic, the, the political sphere, these issues as they relate to CUNY in particular have become, um, have become a, a topic in the ongoing uh, New York State gubernatorial race between the incumbent uh, Governor Hochul and her challenger, Lee Zeldin. Hochul took over when the benighted Andrew Cuomo was forced in office from in shame um, and um, basically has continued all of his all of his policies and worse. And again, anti-Semitism in, in New York at the educational institutions is, is a subset of the, the broader problems that New York City and New York State are experiencing with respect to anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic violence, focused on Israel and focused on Jews as Jews, and also crime in general, which has exploded in New York State and especially in New York City in the last two, three years. And the um, rather parlous economic situation of New York State um, as a whole, um, particularly upstate, but also, um, also downstate and, and in New York City, which has been very, very slow to recover from the, from the pandemic. And uh, Lee Zeldin from Long Island is challenging Hochul and has made anti-Semitism one of the issues um, that he's bringing to the forefront which I think is quite, quite necessary and quite positive. Uh, as of a few weeks ago, he was really given very little chance of succeeding, uh, but uh, chances, chances are, opinions are changing about that, uh, about that question. And uh, recent polls show him running only a few points behind Hochul. So we'll see. And um, certainly New York State could do better and needs needs a change, um, and as does New York City. Um, now I have here a note to to mention the the situation with Morningstar, the the giant corporation that is one of the handful of corporations that owns us all, and um, to which we are. Uh, it's ratings. Uh, bond rating corporation. And it's uh, the continuing scandal regarding its purchase of the of a ratings unit called Sustainalytics. And 19, 18 or 19 um, states with anti-BDS laws on the books have announced that they are investigating Morningstar because Morningstar had, had been called out uh, because it's Sustainalytics branch had systemically uh, discriminated against um, Israeli firms, stating that they were uh, of lesser investment value because uh, they were either active in the disputed territories or because they were Israeli as a whole and involved in a society that um, has contentious political relations and so on. And Morningstar commissioned an investigation from White and Case, a gigantic law firm, which basically exonerated the firm but uh, slapped Sustainalytics on the on the wrist of the, the Morningstar as a whole. Says no, 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 uh, we don't we don't discriminate against Israel. Uh, but state attorneys general are not convinced. Um, and neither are um, a number of lawmakers in, in different states who have called for investigations. And 
the point being that uh, the environmental, social, and governance rules, which have been so quietly yet deeply embedded into the fabric of corporate uh, American corporate life, um, in order to nudge corporations and their shareholders unknowingly, but mostly the corporations and their products and their consumers away from presumably um, negative kinds of investments and behaviors and products, guns, fossil fuels, um, investments in Israel and, and so on, um, in violation of the fiduciary responsibility that corporations and their officers have towards shareholders, has come under tremendous uh, focus really in the last uh, few months. And predictably, um, Israel is an unfortunate part of this equation. And it will be, it will be going forward as well as corporate America resists um, legislative and legal oversight regarding its activities. And this relates to the larger position of corporations in America um, as uh, monopolies and, and unassailable forces from certainly in the technology sphere, um, Morningstar in the investment and ratings sphere and individual corporations as well. And BDS, as always, penetrates into these, these areas and embeds itself and has to be scrutinized and uprooted. Um, but the larger cultural environment is, is also, is really the, 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 the ground on which BDS and, um, and DEI initiatives have been embedded. And here I just wanna go back to the, the campus environment very, very briefly. Because as we know, as we've said over and over and over again, um, campus uh, is, is upstream from politics. It's also upstream from economics. And, and so uh, these activities uh, that legitimize BDS and legitimize anti-Semitism, attitudes that are inculcated into young people, uh, fervently embraced by some young people, accepted or tolerated by other young people who simply see which side of the bread is buttered, have now clearly have an impact on the corporate world, on the political world, and so on. So I'll point to a couple of quick examples. <coughs> Excuse me. So the first day of um, classes at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, uh, students, woke up to find a number of very large slogans chalked on the on the ground of the, the main quad or whatever it is, you know, Zionism has blood on its hands and so on. And that's kind of predictable. What was interesting dismay was the response of the university, which said that essentially some some Jewish students find this anti-Semitic comma, um, the university, uh, on the other hand, embraces free speech as a core value. Now, that's fine. Um, but one only need imagine for a nanosecond what the reaction would have been by the university. Had this um, graffiti targeted some other minority group at the university, let's say Muslim students, let's say um, black students. I do not think that the uh, response would have been so uh, measured and anodyne and embracing of free speech. Now, this is not to say that free speech is not a core value. It is obviously a core value of universities and American society as a whole, but we have to try and understand um, how institutions are going to deal with these things culturally and politically. So there's another example um, at the University of Denver, 
and this is again tragically hilarious in a in a sickening kind of way, if that phrase makes any sense. Um, faculty member of Professor Hashemi, who's Iranian, um, in an interview um, speculated that who benefits, who benefited from the attempted murder of Salman Rushdie? Could it have been a Mossad operation? Now, this is kind of preposterous on its face. It obviously is an exercise in free speech. Condemnations of were swift from many sides, except from the university itself. Um, what is a university supposed to do when, when one of its faculty members kind of goes off the rails a little bit? And this is a very interesting question. I, I don't, I don't know what the the answer is really, or what the answer should be. Um, <clears throat> I do know that the American Association of University Professors' condemnation of the IRA definition of anti-Semitism uh, was not helpful and puts this organization, which purportedly represents faculty members that all faculty as a as a class in American society and American political life, it puts it on on the wrong side of something. And so we're left at the beginning of this uh, academic year at, uh, on the verge of midterms with the question what is what is free speech? Does it have limits? Are there responsibilities? I tend to be personally a free speech absolutist. Um, people can say whatever kind of stupid repulsive things that they want, but the institutional responsibilities to respond to their members, their employees, this is a very interesting question. And I think that students should vote with their, with their feet and with their enrollment dollars. And I'll, I'll conclude only by making a point that I've made many times in the past, is in that um, if we want to understand something about the crisis of the humanities at the university, at American universities, um, a lot of it can be explained by its treatment of, um, ultimately, by its treatment of, of Jews, that uh, anti-Semitism that is tolerated by institutions and foolishness that is um, promulgated by faculty members and by students and tolerated by, by uh, administrations that is structurally, uh, structurally supported by administrations. Um, very much in the name of, of um, a kind of diversity um, is, a, is a negative thing. It's counterproductive for the institutions. It's counterproductive for academia as a, as a whole. And it works to the, to the, um, it creates a very negative environment for Jews, but also it, it's a, a net negative in American society as a whole. So, so that, that's probably a good place to stop. And, um, Let's have some questions if there are any. <clears throat> Great. Uh, thank you as always, Alex, for you know the, uh, the overview. Uh, obviously, you know there's uh, a lot to be concerned about. Uh, not always as uplifting as always, and our topic is not always as uplifting as we would like it to be. Um, and I've I, never been accused of being uplifting in this particular context, so oh, I, I will yeah. not apologize. I have the same problem myself, so uh, you know, you're amongst friends. Uh, so the floor is now open. So anybody, again, as I said, uh, who has questions, feel feel free to either uh, type them into the chat or uh, raise your virtual hand, and we'll be able to uh, answer your question. Uh, let me start us off, I guess, Alex, by you know taking the prerogative. Uh, I'll ask the first question. Um, so. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the, obviously the, you know, the, uh, the race, you know, the races that are going on now, you mentioned Illinois, you mentioned New York, 
um, you know, we're, we're also going into uh, election season in general, also with the state of Israel in November as well. Uh, and obviously the midterms elections in general uh, in all over the place. Are you seeing, um, you know, just a, a little bit of commentary, without, you know, going to the, the political, you know, sphere of the issues, but as far as the, um, the fragmentation of the Jewish community, as it relates to uh, these two elections that are coming up now, now in the States and now in Israel. Um, you want, do you want to just comment a little bit about that uh, as far as uh, the right and the left? Uh, I know you started to touch about that with Illinois, but a little bit something on the broader side of things. At this point, I haven't seen the BDS space or the the Jewish far left that supports the BDS space comment too much about the Israeli elections. Now, all of these all of these characters are, of course, um, <laughs> very much opposed to Netanyahu and. Um, don't want to see him don't want to see him return and and that probably applies to a good swath of the american the american jewish community as well uh, to be to be honest i don't again i haven't seen any numbers on this there are probably numbers out there from polls um for the bds space i i think that they've evolved to a position where the issue isn't isn't who is the elected um, the elected leader of Israel or which party or which coalition is involved? Uh, I think the issue is um, simply the existence of of Israel that is the the irredeemable irredeemable problem. Um, from what I can tell, you know. Israelis too have have issues with with Netanyahu. I think there's a certain amount of fatigue that uh, Israelis have with with him, and the the field of candidates, um, the ever shifting um, party situation is is very is very confusing, and I don't I don't claim to be 100% up on on who's allying with whom um, at, at this at this point. I think the bottom line is it's not gonna matter so much who, who wins and it's not gonna matter so much uh, for BDS. It's not gonna matter so much what kind of peace process does or does not exist after the, after the Israeli elections. It was much more interesting to me to see um, comments this week, earlier, earlier this this week, or the end of last week, um, from the the uh, ambassador of the United Arab Emirates to the U.S., uh, Yusuf Al Utaiba, um, who commented that the palace at a big conference, at, I think it might have been the Jerusalem Post conference in New York City the other day, that the the Palestinian issue is the is the um, 800 pound gorilla in the room, and that to me is a sign, and actually a more important sign than anything that American Jews might say or the BDS movement, because here's a here's a friendly Arab ally um, who is reminding um, Israelis and and their supporters that the issue, the Palestinian issue, is still there and um, has to be addressed one way or another. Now, some of that is simply going to be lip service on his part, and some of it is, might be something more. So, um, so uh, you know, be, without speculating any further, let me leave that there. Great. Thank you. Uh, all right. So we have a few questions coming in from the audience. Um, let me uh, tackle uh, Charles Feynman's question. Uh, and he is asking, um, what do you suggest uh, that could change 
the institutional responsibility for anti-Semitic issues on campus and the ombridge of free speech? Well, I think that those are two, two separable issues. I don't, I don't have a solution to the free speech question or equation, let's call it. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer or a constitutional scholar. My general perspective, as I said before, is that I'm pretty much an absolutist about it. But the, the um, anti-Semitism issue, I think, is, is more addressable only in the sense, and I've said this many times in the past, that um, Jewish students and their parents and alums have to vote with their feet and with their bodies and with their with their wallets. Um, it was very interesting uh, earlier this week, last week, that U.S. News and World Reports uh, dropped Columbia University way down in its in its rankings, and and that got people's attention. Now, I, I haven't looked into this in, in any detail. I don't know, look, US News and World Report and their, their rankings, it's a, whole, it's a whole racket. It's just, and it's full, full of shenanigans every way you, you look at it. But it did hit a nerve and people commented on it. And again, I don't know the basis for, for any, of these, any of these rankings, but, um, does clearly show that reputational challenges to universities um, matter. And when, if, when anti-Semitism at various universities gets um, connected to larger reputational issues, uh, like free speech um, or willingness, unwillingness to tolerate free speech on campus and safety, pure safety issues, on campus, then there might be some some traction. How to square the circle about free speech as a concept, how it's institutionalized and supported. Uh, again, I don't I don't know, but um, all the things that we've seen over the years, harassment, particularly with respect to harassment and, and intimidation, which is unacceptable in any circumstances. Which, which began with apartheid walls and which culminated in um, physical assaults. Um, these have to be these have to be addressed. And, um, but but let's also uh, let's also remind everybody that the that universities as a whole. Uh, academia as a whole is about to go off a demographic cliff in the next few years. Um, there are just all too few high school students who are going to go to these institutions and those cannot be easily manufactured. Um, there'll be more intense competition. There will probably be closures. There will be price pressures, although usually Academia, the price pressure is, is to jack the price up because that shows how, how good and fancy supposedly the, the product is that you're buying. I'm paying for a, I'm paying for a Ferrari, but I'm actually getting a, a you know, a Kia. Um, but we'll see. So change is, change is coming whether these institutions like it or not. And the challenge for Jews and for supporters of Israel is to make sure that our issues are part of the, the landscape um, and are at the forefront of, of change. So, Great, thank you. Um, on to Cal Kaplan's question. It's going to more specifically about the University of Wisconsin and how does the latest, bit, you know, at Wisconsin in general been compared to other universities with other anti-Semitic trends uh, and um, how does the administration, how, 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 how did their administration react uh, to anything that occurred there? Well, as far as I, as far as I recall, and I would have to go back into my files to, to see what kinds of incidents have taken place in the past. Um, Obviously, Wisconsin had big issues during 
the um, Black Lives Matter and George Floyd riots of a few years ago, Madison in particular, and, uh, and Milwaukee, this, the centers of the two um, main campuses. Um, and the, as I recall, the institutions were, um, like all uh, academic institutions, were running scared and said all the right things and did all the right things and, and so on. And, um, but it was interesting to me how, um, how the university responded in this case, that as most universities are, they, they don't want to offend anybody and they are, and at the end of the day, they're perfectly willing to see the Jewish students kind of take one on the chin in order to keep quiet. So, so I'll read you the, um, I'll read you some of the official, the official statement from the University of Wisconsin Vice Chancellor. Uh, we were disappointed that this, the first day of school, was marred by multiple sidewalk talkings appearing around campus, targeting several Jewish student groups, labeling them as, quote, racist or genocidal and having blood on their hands. These labels are anti-Semitic, colon. They attribute broad actions or beliefs to Jewish student groups. Okay, you know, that's, that's fine. And to those Jewish students and others affected, we are sorry for the impact this had on your first day at, at UW. We strive to create a campus where every student feels they belong, and this kind of messaging harms that goal and aspirations. Um, but then they go on, and this is where it gets really good. Um, our job as leaders is not to respond every time a controversial or offensive incident happens on our campus. However, these chalkings provide us a timely opportunity to express our expectations for civil engagement for the campus this fall and as we move forward to together. Here at UW, we believe in sifting and winnowing and a robust commitment to free speech. These can be difficult and uncomfortable at times. While we do not know who created these shockings and acknowledge the impact they had, never, nonetheless, we also acknowledge they represent free speech, which is a core value at UW. Just because something isn't prohibited doesn't make it a good idea. Our expectation is that we engage across differences and discuss varying views and ideas with civility and respect, and that and that did not happen here. Okay, so I apologize for the dramatic reading of this of this statement, which I think illustrates um, how how the university is trying to have it every which way. That we're sorry that your feelings were hurt, you Jewish students, but free speech. And you students who wrote all this very um, mean stuff, okay, you exercised your free speech, but it wasn't terribly civil. And uh, please, please make all these problems go away. And that's the mantra of every university administration of when it comes to the Jewish question. Um, please, please, everybody, just make this problem go away. And where it's going to go from here, um, I don't know. I think it. Uh, I'll be. I'll be interested to see. I, and I, I know, hundred percent, thousand percent, that the whichever uh, pro BDS group um, was, that was responsible, that they are seething. Absolutely, they're livid at this utterly mild um, rebuke. And so, uh, and, and I think that it's a good bet that they will, somebody will respond probably anonymously and, and condemn this so-called condemnation. So, so we'll see. And, and, you know, and please make the problem go away as, as you and I know, Alex, I mean, that's something also we've had uh, confirmed by um, our past speakers that, that, you know, that dealt with DEI and uh, the officers responsible for DEI on campuses as far as either uh, pushing, basically kicking the can down to the next person or trying to make it go away by trying to avoid and dealing with the problem all around. I mean, that's, you know, obviously a growing problem that we're seeing with the with the exact individuals where the portfolio is uh, supposedly sitting on their desks. 
Right, and I, I, you know, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. I think that this, you know, the people who are specifically charged with responding to these kinds of things don't think that Jews are a, a marginal group. Don't think that they're a minority. Don't think that they're being discriminated against, and uh, basically tell. Jewish students, pro-Israel students, as they did explicitly at the University of Vermont, apparently, suck it up. <laughs> this is, you know, this is nothing you're, you're overreacting. And again, in a comparative sense, can you imagine the response had this been some other group? Um, it would have been, it would have been a national would have been a, literally a federal case, um, I suspect, uh, had this had this kind of graffiti targeted Muslims, blacks, or other marginal groups, and um, so we'll see. But, uh, I don't have I don't have a good feeling about dealing with DEI bureaucrats. In in academia or in the in the corporate sector, uh, I think that these are simply unaccountable unaccountable um, bureaucrats who have a particular uh, particular ideology, a particular worldview, and who have increasingly unlimited power to uh, to make problems and to ignore problems. So. Right, and clearly we will see more data coming out on that, you know, illustrated by uh, when we hosted Sam Abrams, and so hopefully we can also bring him back uh, and discuss some of his uh, latest stats on some of those issues as well. Right, and and it, but it'll what's interesting, and you mentioned Sam Abrams, who who uh, was on our on our webinar uh, the end of the spring, um, his. His sense and his prediction is that uh, the newer generation of students have very much less interest and patience for this kind of these kinds of uh, this kind of politicization and hostility. And uh, I hope that he's right. We'll we'll see. Uh, unfortunately, the last generation of students are the ones who are in the DEI bureaucracies now. And in the corporate um, bureaucracies, so uh, maybe we're being set up for a generational conflict of of a sort, and that would be that would be interesting, maybe maybe useful and refreshing. Um, who knows? That would be um, great. Thank you for that. Uh, let me try to unmute uh, Pauline Rosenberg here. She has a question. Let me see if we can uh, connect her to ask her question. Pauline, can you hear us? Pauline? Uh, okay, Pauline is not answering. So uh, we will try her again. Uh, let me see if she can, uh, okay, we'll mute her back. Uh, okay, a few more questions came in into uh, the chat. Let me try to uh, deal with that. Um, uh, okay. Uh, so Eric Tucker, uh, who actually uh, following up on your point about um, the New York governor also attended uh, the J Post uh, conference um, uh, the other day. Uh, and uh, he's making a comment, you know, that he heard her opponent yesterday at the J Post conference was very vocal supporter, which is great, uh, but not clear why this governor's race was highlighted uh, at the belining of the call. Um, any comments more about uh, New York politics? I know that's uh, your neck of the woods, Alex. Well, I wasn't at the conference, so I can't uh, I can't comment specifically about what was said or not said there, um, or the rationale for inviting whomever. I know that Hochul has announced her first trip to Israel. I think in the next few weeks. So, and that's a very traditional kind of pilgrimage, um, quite literally, for New York politicians. Uh, used to be they would go to Ireland. Um, now they go to 
to, to Israel in order to shore up support. Um, the polling data for Hochul is, is decaying a little bit, but um, you know, she's, still, she's still ahead. I think, again, you know, Zeldin, Zeldin has, has made this an issue uh, at, for a couple of months, he's, he's specifically cited the CUNY situation um, as singling it out as, as a particularly egregious example of, of campus anti-Semitism. Um, and it's not surprising that it, he's making it a, one of his campaign issues as well. I don't think that she has responded to that specifically yet. And she has a problem because obviously <clears throat> the state teachers unions are solidly democratic and they're huge, uh, it's a huge electoral block and a huge financial support for, for her campaign and for other democratic campaigns. So she may not have a lot of flexibility to really um, address the issue directly. And um, so to the extent that he, he is running as the underdog and is trying to keep these, all of these issues in the, in the forefront, um, good, good for him. Um, we'll see, we'll see how much traction it, it really, it really gets. I, you know, I live in New York state, but I, I wouldn't predict what, uh, what, what's going to happen because there's so many different moving parts, but, um, teachers unions are a huge, huge part of the equation in New York, generally New York city and New York state. And they're pretty solidly democratic. Having said that, there are a number of Democrats who've de publicly defected to, to Zelda. Um, so we'll see. I, I don't think I can really say more. Well, good. Thank you. Uh, let me try to combine Joan Wine and Jonathan Finkelstein's question here. Uh, Joan, of course, is asking, uh, what is DEI? Uh, you know, DEI stands for uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and you can you know, uh, go into more detail on that. Uh, but Jonathan is also trying to understand here, uh, how does BDS actually infiltrate uh, the DEI and the corporations? And so if you want to comment a little bit about that. Well, you know, DEI bureaucracies who are charged in, in the corporate sphere, who are charged with, um, they're the human, they're the HR departments now. Um, and their charge is to diversify in racial and gender terms in particular, um, the, the composition of corporate employment. With this, they bring other explicit attitudes regarding equity, that the idea that um, equitable outcomes are the only are the only just outcomes, and that outcomes that are unequal in some way are automatic evidence of discrimination of some sort. Many of most of these DEI, uh, DEI professionals um, are also responsible for um, training and onboarding at, at, um, at corporations in which critical race theory is becoming a, a more important, ever more important component. As we know within the um, concept of critical race theory. Jews are not uh, a marginal minority in American life. They're simply succe very successful white people and Israel is simply a colonial entity that has to be resisted because it oppresses um, a, a brown minority, specifically Palestinians, so-called. Of course, this is all um, tendentious nonsense. So in the case of Morningstar, Morningstar is a good example um, because there, this uh, 
bond rating company um, bought this firm called Sustainalytics, which does uh, the new kind of ratings on uh, corporations and investment environments, which uh, its specialty was human rights. Now, I don't want to go off on a whole jag about how human rights and the human rights industry is systemically pervasively um, biased against Israel and its supporters. But what they did in this, in this case was uh, one of Sustainalytics vice presidents had been a, a top official at B'Tselem in, in Israel. And B'Tselem is one of the many, many BDS supporting groups that opposes the occupation so-called, and is um, rather overt in its opposition to, uh, to everything that Israel does, says, and is. Um, so this person was a vice president uh, at Sustainalytics. Israeli firms were rated at, as being of higher risk for investment because they were Israeli and in a contested political environment whether or not they were um, working across the green line in the West Bank or not. And um, this eventually came to the notice of somebody. So it's these kinds of, it's these kinds of manifestation where um, DEI related, inspired, or, or actual kinds of um, personnel have direct impacts on, on embedding um, BDS within the corporate environment, in this case, in, in, um, in a ratings agency. And we can probably find lots of other examples where, well, uh, actually, we have a very good example. Um, this earlier this week, late last week, whenever it was, um, Google employees in Austin, I think, um, had a protest that of uh, the about Google, which is um, you know the the Alphabet Corporation, um, doing a project for the Israeli government. The Israeli government basically wants to put all of its stuff all of its uh, procedures and entities into a, into a cloud, cloud computing. And Google employees, um, inspired by um, the, the concept of human rights, inspired by DEI concepts, um, are protesting this. And they, because Google shouldn't be doing business with Israel because Israel's a human rights offender in their view. So these kinds of things are in lots of places beyond the, the, the straightforward, and they're not so straightforward, um, boycott calls, Ben and Jerry's kinds of, um, no, we're not gonna be selling our ice cream in, in the West Bank kinds of calls. These are, these are much deeper and they run, um, uh, teasing them out surgically is very, very difficult. And we're only, at, we're only at the beginning of that process now. And but that's what makes Morningstar and Sustainalytics an interesting case study. Um, so. Great. Uh, well, thank you, Alex, for all of that. As always, uh, we appreciate the, uh, the larger, you know, deep dive of, of the larger trends that we're doing now. And obviously there's a lot to discuss and a lot to look at uh, as we look at this uh, coming semester and in general, um, what's happening in American society at large. Uh, unfortunately, our time is up. And uh, I know there are questions we did not get to. And uh, I, as I said early on, I apologize in advance. Uh, please feel free to email us at bdsmonitor at spme.org and we'll do our best to respond in a timely fashion. Uh, and obviously be on the lookout for um, future programs. We will be uh, now resuming now that now we're back in, in full session uh, with our uh, webinars. Uh, 
with uh, our local talent and, and guest speakers as always. Uh, I want to thank everybody again for joining us this afternoon. I want to thank Alex as always for uh, for joining me. Um, wishing everybody a um, a good day, and uh, we will talk soon. And um, stay 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 healthy and stay well.